Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java Junkies. Hope you're enjoying your favorite brew. I am uh, onto water as it's late afternoon here on a Friday afternoon, but I hope you are savoring something warm or enjoying something, maybe even on ice that has a little caffeine in it, because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Art Schaefer, who is a staff scientist at the National Career Institute, which is part of the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. Art is going to help us. He's already done this if you've listened to the espresso shots, but he is going to help all of us who had just a teeny tiny bit of an appreciation for what it means to be a cancer researcher, better understand the field, and get excited about the opportunities that lie ahead for so many young people who are interested in the science world and maybe even who aren't. So Art Schaefer, welcome to Time for Coffee. Well, great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Art, what are the primary functions of a staff scientist? Well, you have you have opened a can of worms there. So I hope you have a couple of minutes, and your uh, your listeners should uh, take a big swig here at this point. So, staff scientist is a very unique kind of position. It lies between being a postdoctoral fellow. That's kind of when you're finishing your apprenticeship or being an apprentice scientist, and being a principal investigator, and that's a senior scientist. Um, this was a position created at the NIH, I guess, a few decades ago um, under something called Title 42. And what that lets the government do is pay a competitive wage. So it's not on the GS system, which lots of people have heard about, the government service system. And the idea was to basically kind of preserve um, skills and knowledge and some historical background within labs. So we weren't constantly reinventing the wheel with new trainees. So that being said, staff scientists are used in a variety of ways at the NIH. They can be super postdocs, so still working at the bench, but with a lot more skills and getting a lot more done. No offense to the postdocs, but we just have more experience. Um, Some are used as, as lab managers because they have the experience. So organizing, ordering, um, that kind of thing. Sometimes they are given the responsibilities of kind of a mini principal investigator. Um, It all depends on what your principal investigator needs from you. And it can blend back and forth. So I do a lot of bench research. So I'm a super postdoc some days. Some days I'm the lab manager. Some days I'm the mentor because my boss is away or my boss is too busy. So we we wear a lot of hats at the National Cancer Institute and the NIH in general because Staff scientists are all over the NIH. So what is a bench? Oh, sorry. (laughs) So what what that means is I I have a laboratory bench with machines and chemicals on it, and I actually do experiments every single day. So I'm, I'm at the laboratory. I'm at the laboratory bench every single day. So you're sitting there with your I'm sitting sitting microscope. there with the microscope, with pipettes moving liquids from this tube to that tube. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. So being at the bench means you're doing experiments every day, and we we often call them 
wet wet bench experiments because it involves liquids or living cells or that kind of thing. Increasingly, though, some of the experiments we do are what we call in silico experiments, where we have big databases of, of human data, whether it's human genome sequences or you know measurements from you know electrolytes in blood or whatever, and we just comb through these with a hypothesis and we look at the data and we make graphs and charts and you know that's in silico experimentation basically these days. And it's is it primarily using computers yeah. to run the the data? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Computers are uh, you know an inextricable part of all biological research these days. Um, there's you really can't do biology without uh, not just computer power, but a lot of computer power. I mean, a single human genome is three billion bases, and you know now as a, as a scientific community, we've sequenced you know, a million or so human genomes. So to sort through that, you need a lot of computer power. So on the espresso shots, you shared with our Java community that there are at least 400 different types of cancer Mm -hmm. that exist today. Mm -hmm. What are you in the midst of researching right now? And can you take us into a recent day in the lab in the life of Art Schaefer? Sure. So the the particular kind of cancer that we study in the lab is called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And that's very descriptive. When you look at, under the microscope at a patient's biopsy, the cells are spread out, so they're diffuse. They're bigger than normal cells, so that's large. And they're derived from a type of cell called a B-cell. Those are the cells uh, that when we get an immunization, they're the ones that make antibodies. So B cells make antibodies. And these are bad B cells, ones that have become cancerous. So that's the specific subtype of cancer that we study. And it's a, one type of probably a few dozen types of lymphoma. So that's already you know a subtype of subtype. Um, and then even within that, while I've been in the lab, we've further subdivided diffuse large B cell lymphoma into... Well, it used to be two flavors, and now we just published a paper this year in New England Journal of Medicine where it's probably more like four or six flavors. And that's and what does that mean? Flavor. Well, flavor means it has different genetic mutations that drive the cancer, and because the genetic mutations are slightly different that drive the cancer to make them all look like diffuse large B cell lymphoma, um, because there are different pathways taken to to get to this cancerous state, we have to come up with different therapeutics to treat each one of those. So, a typical day. <laughs> it's kind of a uh, funny coincidence that, you know, we're doing this together because my typical day literally starts with going to get coffee at the coffee shop. All right. It really does. I, I get off the, the metro, walk into Building 10, which is the clinical center on the NIH campus, go right to the coffee shop and get the biggest coffee that I can. <laughs> And then I take it, you know, take it up to the lab. And of course, like many people, I check my emails and things. And whoever's in the lab at the time, I usually wander around sipping my coffee, you know, seeing how they're doing. In our lab, people can work whatever schedules they like. And I tend to be an early bird. So if one of the later people comes in while I'm drinking my coffee, I find out what happened after I went home. Um, and then it starts, uh, the, the real research day starts. And I usually go... Um, we have multiple lab spaces, so I go from where my desk is down to a lab where I do something called tissue culture. What tissue culture is, is in a sterile environment, basically growing and analyzing and treating with you know experimental drugs, um, cancer cells. 
in a dish. So we call it tissue because we're growing cancer cells, tissues from patients. And culture just means cultivating. It's like being a farmer or a, or a shepherd. You know, I'm kind of keeping, tending my flock uh, of research uh, materials. And these are, you know, living human cells that I'm, I'm experimenting with or analyzing. And I do that, you know, for a few hours. It depends on the, the given day, how many experiments there are. And then integrated with that or, you know, checking emails and going to um, lectures. We have lots of lectures. And then I spend a good amount of time um, mentoring the postdocs in the lab because we have about half a dozen at any given time. So I check on their projects and see how they're doing and make suggestions or even help them out doing experiments with them or, or for them on the side. We're very, science is a very collaborative process. And so that's kind of a broad, I guess, kind of broad overview of what I do with a, a few details, I, I hope. And then um, one thing I do kind of off the clock, but it's related to my, my career is I, I do like to teach. So whenever I get an opportunity, either run out to a high school or have kids come to the NIH, I like teaching. How did you get into this specialty? So I was trained as, a, as an immunologist in my PhD. So I, I studied all the cells of the immune system. And when it came time to look for a, a postdoctoral position, because that's the kind of academic track, you get your PhD and then you uh, look for a postdoctoral position. Um, my boss had a, a friend, uh, my boss uh, for my PhD had a friend here at the National Institutes of Health who was not studying immunology, but was studying cancers uh, of cells that are part of the immune system. So I could take my knowledge of the immune system, knowing how those cells were supposed to work properly, and apply it to hopefully understanding what happens when they become cancerous, when they break. Um, and that turned out to actually be really fruitful. It was, you know, it was hopeful that that knowledge would translate, but it turned out to be really helpful. You know, understanding how something's supposed to work really does give you a perspective on what happens when it when it breaks. Um, and and in fact, not just my work, but you know, over the decades in the lab, and you know, dozens, maybe fifty or more postdocs contributing, is we've. We really understand now in the lymphoma that we study that they co-opt normal functions of immune cells to survive and duplicate and become cancerous. They, they don't really reinvent a, a, a wheel. They use all the mechanisms that were already there, just kind of rev them up and exploit them, which is kind of interesting and, and gives us a, a way to, to crack into treating them. And where are we in terms of, I should say, where are you in terms of cracking the code there? Yeah, yeah you know, so I've been in, in this same lab at the NIH uh, for about two decades now. And most of that two decades has been mapping out... Um, what we call signaling pathways in these cells. And what that means is a cell communicates with its environment. And, you know, cells are surrounded by a membrane, but sticking out of that are proteins. And those proteins sense what's going on in the environment. And through various mechanisms, they can send signals um, that, you know, communicate what's going on outside the cell to the inside of the cell. And that can affect the genes that are turned on or turned off inside the cell. And what that ultimately can affect is whether or not the cell decides to divide or not, and how fast it divides. And what we spent these 20 years doing is mapping the signaling pathway that these cancer cells absolutely rely on to survive and to, you know, kind of inappropriately divide. 
And now that we have that, this map in down to the molecular level, we know that protein A touches protein B and turns on protein C, and that turns on a whole suite of genes you know, in the genome. What's great is uh, sometimes in collaboration with pharma companies, um, there's a whole armamentarium of drugs out there. And until we had mapped that, say, protein B is essential in this cancer signal pathway, we wouldn't have known that the drug out there in the universe that was already there to, to kill protein B um, turns out to be a great therapeutic. And so one of, one of the things we've been studying are, is matching the drug to parts of the signaling pathway to turn it off so the cancer cells stop dividing. And that's been incredibly successful to the point that my major project now is trying to understand um, when patients' cancer cells become resistant to these drugs. So think about it like um, bacterial antibiotic resistance. So we've all heard that that's a growing problem, and that's true. And that's because you get sick, you're given antibiotic A, you take it, and sometimes you you take it like you're supposed to, and some people don't, and now we have bacteria that are resistant to antibiotic A. And that's just a basic evolutionary principle. If you have a whole population of cells and you throw a drug at them, antibiotic in this case on bacteria, eventually some are going to be resistant and then that's going to be the new population. Drug A doesn't work. Exactly the same with cancer cells. If you throw one drug at a you know, population of cancer cells, you may shrink a tumor enormously, you may even make it go away in some patients. But more often than not, don't mean to depress anybody, but this is how it works. More often than not is you'll knock the tumor back and then the cells that are left will become resistant to that cancer drug. So even though we've mapped the pathway and we have all these great drugs to treat cancer now, resistance to each of these drugs is becoming an increasing problem. And my job now is to figure out how to combat the resistance to these drugs. And so that's exactly what I'm doing right now is figuring out the resistance to cancer drugs. And it's it's great. And there's plenty of hope there. Thank you for saying that. That's uh, that's really good to hear. What skills do you think make for a great researcher? Ooh. <laughs> uh, I've seen I've seen so many different styles of re- researcher over the years that obviously, you know, critical thinking, got to be, you know, you're a scientist, we follow logic. Um, but at the same time, some creative thinking as well. Because if, if you're, you know, following the data to the next experiment and the next experiment and the next experiment, and you're seeing how these living systems are changing when you're manipulating them in, in, in your lab, sometimes you need a little creative spark to, to interpret the data you're getting and to make sense out of it because you can get a whole bunch of data but the idea is to unify it into a you know a, a biological theme or a principle to make some useful useful knowledge out of it that's one theme I, I hit up a lot with some of the kids that I teach is we are tsunamied with data these days we have tons of data but making useful knowledge out of that is not necessarily a critical thinking skill it can be more of an art form where you synthesize things that you never really thought would go together. So some critical thinking, some creative thinking, 
you know, I think those those are two essential qualities. What about optimism? Oh yeah. So the, the <laughs> this is probably one of the biggest lessons I learned, and it took a long time to internalize this versus internalizing the negative side. So in science, the reason science takes so long. So people are always asking me, why is it taking so long to cure this or fix that? Or because scientists come up with hypotheses, we test them. And most of the time we're wrong or um, even more kind of pedestrian, but this is really the truth is just getting, setting up the system, setting up the experiment to even ask the question can be really tricky or, or difficult. You have to figure out the right concentration of chemicals or the cells you want to interrogate just won't grow in a dish. So you can't do that experiment. Or there are many technical hurdles to overcome before you can even ask the scientific question. And when you ask the scientific question, you might not get the answer that you want. So failure is inherent in science. That's why science takes a long time. And so science is not for the faint of heart. And the hardest thing for me, getting back to optimism, was to to keep that optimism because every time an experiment failed, I took it as a personal failure for a really long time. And you have to get over that if you're going to succeed in science because you're going to fail more often than you win. So you de-emphasize the failures and you focus on the wins and you let the wins kind of get you through. (laughs) But that's really hard to do because we're we're built to, you know, if we fail, then we're bad or we're, we've done something wrong. And we have to change that narrative. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that can be really, really tough. And I'm not sure in science, we, we mentor people well enough in that direction yet. So I'm see if I can fix that over time. I bet you will. Art, you're obviously a very accomplished, uh, talented scientist. And I'm just curious if there are any skills that you wish you had that you don't. And if so, how are you coping? So, yeah, there are probably two. The one, the one which I, I just don't have, and a lot of my scientist colleagues do, is kind of an encyclopedic memory in that they can they can read scientific papers and and like quote references in there. I can't. I usually can't remember the authors on many scientific papers, which is terrible. I mean, I do when I write my own papers or I you know, talk about them in public, but I, I have to do my homework over and over again. So I don't have that encyclopedic memory. I can remember what figures look like in papers, you know, what graphs and charts look like. That I lock in, but the details of who did what and that's usually lost on me, which is bad. Um, the other skill, which I'm still working on after all this time, is patience. And it gets back to this, this failure issue is sometimes I really just want things to go right now. <laughs> you know, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a, still a long walk to get there. And so uh, patience is a, a necessary virtue. I think. All right. Well, as to your first point, holy cow. I mean, how many people in the world have a photographic memory, which is what you Mm -hmm. were just describing there? Mm -hmm. I would love that superpower for sure. Oh, my gosh. It would it would make life so much simpler if I could just, you know, go to the data bank in the back of my head and pull it out. But I just can't. You should see my desk. I have paper written all over the place. So, for instance, you know, go on vacation before I the day before I go on vacation, I live literally have a legal pad on my desk and I write down everything I was doing and a set of experiments for when I get back. And when I'm two days into vacation, 
I couldn't quote you half of what I had written down on that piece of paper. I have to write it down. Yeah, but kudos to you for coming up with a system to jog your memory when you get back. Are, how important is networking in this field? Would you say that you're a good networker? And you know, what advice do you have for those who may find that a really intimidating thing to do? And, you know, how can you, how can they improve? Yeah. Well, you, you may not believe this, but, um, for the longest time I was very introverted and super shy. How that changed wasn't so deliberate as just forcing myself to do what needed to be done. And what that means, for instance, is, um, going to scientific meetings and you're kind of standing around and you don't know anybody, but you just go and introduce yourself and start up a conversation. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but it gets easier and it gets easier. And networking is critical in science these days. It used to be maybe a generation or two ago that a particular lab headed by a particular, usually then white male scientist, was its own kind of iconic fiefdom. And they would just control a field of study. That is no longer the case. Collaboration, to me, is the name of the game. Um, And that's one of the things that I'm really good at doing in the lab is listening to the other researchers around me, either at the NIH or outside, realizing how we can help them move their projects forward, how they can help us move our projects forward. And then we start a collaboration, and then everybody wins. Um, But to be fair... I'm in a very rarefied place at the National Institutes of Health. Even though our money comes from the government and budget fights are always fun, it's not nearly as stressful for us to get funding as it is um, people on the outside, people in academia. So it's easier for me to kind of blithely say, I want to work with you and I want to want to work with you and I want to work with you when I'm not worrying about resources or priority of publication, that kind of thing. So I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but but I really do believe that that collaboration and networking are are essential not just for moving science forward but for just being happy in what you do so going back to your initial point yes i am surprised to hear (laughs) this was something that was difficult for you because you come across so naturally extroverted so (laughs) what do you recommend that our listeners study are many of them uh are still undergrads you yourself, as you said, were liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if they know now or if they're getting inspired to pursue mm-hmm. a career in this profession after listening to you, what should they study? So I would have been better served if when I was doing undergrad or even graduate school, if there had been... Um, even existed the whole area of what what we call bioinformatics now and what that covers would be things like statistics because data sets are so large these days the way you analyze them is through statistical analysis and that's critical you need to understand what something called a p-value is what a p-value just gives you an idea of whether or not you should believe the data that you're you're looking at it gives you an idea of you know what's the chance that this is not real and versus real. Um, so that's really important. Computer skills, essential, but not just being able to, you know, run Word, actually being able to program 
in a language called R or a language called Python. These are more scientifically directed programming languages because sometimes you need to write specialized programs to deal with these large sets of data and comb through them because, you know, you might sound a little uh, amazing, and it is, but, you know, I, I, with help in the lab, I sequenced a human genome last week, and we got all the data. I was looking for mutations. It took our bioinformatician not that long, but using a supercomputer cluster to kind of map all that information onto what a normal genome looks like, and then find the mutations, and then I combed through it. But there were layers upon layers of these computer uh, language programs in R that were written to process that. Um, and that didn't exist even a decade ago. And these tools are still being built. So having some facility with understanding statistics and programming languages, I think, are essential. So tell us a bit about your time at the University of Delaware, what you studied, and did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated? So I went to the University of Delaware, um, and I was fortunate to get into its honors program because University of Delaware is quite a big state university. But the honors program was quite small and, to, you know, and took very good care of incoming freshmen. And the other thing that took me there was um, literally half a dozen of my friends from high school went to the same university. So we, we went as a little family. Not surprisingly, after the first year, we had all, you know, matured in different directions and we were all still friends, but we had all gone in our different directions. So I, I did my Bachelor of Arts uh, there because there was no Bachelor of Science at that point. This was uh, 1980, the fall of 1985. <laughs> it's a while ago. Um and that actually served me really well. I got They had a, a great biology department um, where I learned all the basics. I even got to do a little bit of undergraduate research, which really locked in knowing that I wanted to be in a laboratory environment because there are lots of things you can do in bioscience that don't necessarily mean you have to go into a lab and do research every day. But it also gave me the freedom to, you know, do other things. I took history classes. I took, you know, English composition classes, uh, you know, a little French on the side, which I'd had in high school. I joined the uh, uh, the drama club there, you know, so I, I got a very well-rounded undergraduate education with a focus on biology and it helped me lock in that that was my, where I wanted to go uh, with my career. Did I think I was going to end up at the National Institutes of Health researching cancer? No, but I knew I liked biology. And so, you know, then it was on to the next step after that. What was your first job out of school and how did you get it? It did things a little bit non-traditionally, but it worked out, I think, well. Um, and that was, I took time off between undergraduate and grad school. And that was a deliberate choice. My last year of undergrad, I just didn't I just didn't feel ready to commit to graduate school yet. So my first job was with a contracting company that, that bought my skills and sold me to what then was the Navy Hospital. That's now the Walter Reed National Medical Center, you know, just up the street. And I was in a lab there, and it was their job to bring new molecular techniques to make bone marrow matches for transplant. And this, it was a whole new technology uh, that was being developed. And I was right there while they were doing it, which was great. And the Navy was involved because they had a um, so-called captive audience. We could get blood samples from enlisted personnel and work on them and develop a huge registry, which was great. And that was in, they were doing that in collaboration with Georgetown. So once they, they saw I had a, you know, pretty good skills, they transferred me to Georgetown, which is where things were really happening. And so I got, you know, an academic exposure, uh, to a lab during that time. I just, I decided that I wanted to go back to 
did want to go back to graduate school, uh, and I wanted to get my MD PhD. That's what I thought I wanted. So I did some interviews and ultimately decided that it. I, I really only wanted the, the medical degree to help focus me on clinical research. I have you know, no problem with the idea of treating patients, but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be, as we talked earlier, at the bench doing experiments. Didn't want to be in the clinic writing prescriptions. And I realized pretty quickly that that was incompatible with the MD part of an MD-PhD. So focused uh, eventually on getting my PhD and found this lovely program at Johns Hopkins, which focused on immunology and had a small focused faculty of about a dozen researchers. And that was that was great. So you ended up taking a couple years between undergrad and graduate school. Mm-hmm. In hindsight, do you think that was a better path? What advice do you have for people who obviously, if they want to get on the bench, Mm -hmm. are going to need their PhD? Do you think it's better to just rip off the Band-Aid and get it over with or to get a little practical experience in between? So following the, the typical pathway of going from undergrad directly to grad school, tons of people super su- successful doing that. So what I'm about to say is going to seem a bit of retroactive self-justification. But I do remember, um, so I, I, I lived here in, in Washington on, on those uh, off years or gap years, I guess they call them now, um, before I moved to Baltimore. And during that time, you know, I had to find my own apartment and learn how to pay bills and pay taxes. And that the September when I went to graduate school in Baltimore and moved and all that stuff and started with my colleagues for the first six months or so, I saw all of them, really all of them floundering with the not scientifically, but with all the trappings of being a functioning adult. And that was no offense to them. They, they just had no, no experience. And so getting those, those skills kind of locked in before going to graduate school made my transition, I think, a lot easier than, than many of theirs. You know, so like I said, this could be retroactive self-justification, but it seemed to me I didn't have to worry about, you know, how do I go to the grocery store for myself kind of stuff. But I think all whatever path works, I think that's that's the way people should go. Art, one of the things that I like to get from my various guests is a story, a moment, a time in their life when they really were struggling on the job to deal with whatever the problem is. I think it's I think it's easy to look at people who are in their 40s and 50s and 60s who are much more accomplished, who've made it to a certain level in their profession, and to think that person had smooth sailing, and not to know that there were backstories that they had to overcome. And I'm just wondering if there's something that you could share with our listeners that could be a comfort to them as they embark on their lives in this profession. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, really, there are there are probably two if we have time for both of them. Sure. So, and one happened quite early, and one happened not so long ago. So, you know, bad things still happen. <laughs> Um, so the early one, this was when I was in graduate school at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and laboratories often have to store biological samples 
and we store them in big high-powered freezers that keep things super cold, so minus 80 degrees Celsius, so super cold, but that helps preserve things for a long time. But as you might imagine, where we bank away our precious biological samples, um, and what happens if the freezer breaks? Could be trouble. So what most labs do to this day is have some sort of monitoring system and then taped on these freezers are people's phone numbers. So if something goes wrong and somebody notices it, you call somebody and they come in and help you move everything to another freezer. So that my graduate lab was set up that way and I was one of the people on the, the phone list. And it was um, a Valentine's Day weekend and it turns out that um, my mom's birthday is on Valentine's Day. So my mom and dad came down to Baltimore and I had arranged to take my mom out to this elegant dinner for her birthday. And we were literally walking out the door and I get a phone call from somebody who's at the lab saying this freezer is melting down. And I know there are four or five other people on the on the list. So I kind of blow it off. I mean, I'm nice about it, but I kind of think, you know, I've got these plans with my mom. There are other people who will take care of this. Not a problem. I go in on Monday and my boss calls me into the office. There was nobody else around but me that weekend. And everything in the freezer was basically destroyed. And some critical things for some another graduate student in the lab were just irretrievably lost. Her work was just gone. And what, and of course I felt terrible. And then there were, there were tears on my part. And what I learned then is how to, you have to be a good lab citizen. I mean, these things are in place and it's, it's a commitment that you've made. And, you know, it would have been, we would have missed our dinner reservation, but it's not like there aren't a whole lot of restaurants in Baltimore. My mom would have been perfectly happy if I'd just gone to the store then and, and cooked for her. But I had really, I had really messed up somebody else's stuff by not doing my job. And, and I still feel terrible about that. Everything worked out in the end. But, um, you know, that, that was a lesson about you got to be a good citizen. You know, it's, it's a group effort. We've talked about a little bit about this before. It's a group effort. When you're in a, in a lab, you're in a family. I mean, and you have to, you have to be part of it. And so that was, that was a good, that was a good hard lesson. The second thing happened just in the past few years. So staff scientists, um, are reviewed, uh, quadrennially. So every four years. So every four years they look at what I've done and they say, great art. You get another four years where they're like, well, we might need to let you go. So far that that hasn't happened, (laughs) but you get, you get a rating and your rating does often dictate, uh, salary or access to certain resources or a, you know, promotion and title. And, um, throughout my career at the NIH every four years, I'd, I'd gotten the highest rating, which was great. It made me feel good. I thought I was doing the right thing. And then a couple cycles ago, I got dinged. I didn't get a super low rating and they didn't, you know, ask me to leave or anything, but I got dinged. And for the first time, they included the justification for lowering my rating. And it was, um, doesn't participate enough in the scientific community. That was exactly 
the wrong thing to say because that was one of the few things compared to all the other staff scientists I excelled at at the NIH. I was running um, all sorts of interest groups. I was helping organize seminars and workshops and, you know, getting collaborations going. So how they missed that, I, I still to this day don't know. But it, it wasn't so much getting dinged because if they, if they had said my publication record wasn't as good as everybody else's. Okay, I could, that I could accept, but they dinged me on the thing that was just not true. It was the opposite of what was true. So what did you say? Well, I took it to my boss and I took it up the ladder. And the, the response I got from most people was, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Even though they could tell I was shaking with both rage and frustration that it clearly mattered to me. It just didn't matter. Like it wasn't. It wasn't going to change your your pay, and you still have a job. And so it was. This is one of the times that I may have mentioned before that that admin and I have a a love hate relationship. And this was a this was a hate day uh, because that's what I that's what I was running into. And to this day, that's never been really resolved. But in a way, it's been true. It hasn't it hasn't stopped me from doing what I love. It was just one of those weird things that was kind of personally offensive, but you just got to shake it off. And and I have. But um, and I've been reviewed since then. And that magically went away. So, <laughs> But it's one of those things you, you have to you have to learn to deal with that, because every once in a while, life is going to smack you upside the head when you least expect it. And in a way that gets to you more than you think it would. I mean, this was a, a rating and I was going to still have my job, but it, it was personally offensive to me and I didn't realize how deeply it really bothered me. I think that is such a, a great example, Art, of how at times things will happen that aren't fair, that aren't right, that aren't just. In your case, fortunately, it didn't affect your ability to do your job and to be recognized for all the great things you are doing. And how you move forward, how you're able to not let it affect Mm -hmm. your sense of self is super important. Yeah, no, and and that was a that was a struggle. I mean, I lost sleep that night and what what it became, and again I was very fortunate that it didn't have, you know, future repercussions, but it was just day by day, you know. The first day was really upsetting. The second day when I thought about it, it was, you know, ninety percent as upsetting, and then it was eighty percent as upsetting. So you know, time does kind of heal all wounds eventually, um, if you're lucky. Um, but yeah, no, that it was it was a lesson to me, even after all this time in my career, that something could sneak up on me like that. It was it was it was instructive to me. Well, thank you so much for sharing both of those examples with us. Final time for coffee question here. Okay. If you could go back to the University of Delaware and do it all over again, based on the the wisdom that you have gleaned over the last number of decades, what would you do differently? Or, frankly, what advice would you give yourself about how to spend that time at college? Mm. I, I think in, in general, and I, then I'll try to see if I can make this more specific. 
I, I would be a lot kinder to my younger self or tell, tell my younger self to be kinder to myself. And this gets back to something we talked about earlier is internalizing failure. Um, it was so hard on myself when I'd fail in the lab. Um, and I, I didn't realize that was that was part of the process. That's part of, of how you, you know, kind of toughen up. And also it's just part of the way things go. Um, but... No, I was, you know, I was in this mindset. I'd been very successful in high school and all my friends were super smart. And, you know, it just seems like it was it was a a culture of constant success with with no options for for failure or no not options for failure, but no mechanism for dealing with failure other than self-flagellation. and so that's what I would go back and tell myself is just <laughs> relax. <laughs> it's going to be okay. And that's not to, to sap motivation because sometimes failure or, or a little bit of uh, kicking one's own butt is good. But, um, you know, I think I took it to too much of an extent. And frankly, a lot of the, the kids that I teach these days, you know, are, you know, out in these high school environments where they're super successful and they're pointed right at the, the best academic institutions. And one tiny misstep, one B sometimes, you know, these kids will come into class, they look, you know, and one or two might come early. And, you know, I talk to them like, you look, you look really sad today. You look really tired. Oh yeah. I got a B on my French test. <laughs> and I try not to, to laugh because it's not funny to them, but having all the you know decades of perspective that I do, it's like, you're not even going to remember that French test two years from now, let alone 10 or 20 years from now. It's not going to matter. So internalizing all this failure is just not, it's not good for anybody. So that's what I would tell myself. Art Schaefer, thank you so very much for making time to have coffee with me and the Java Junkie community. Well, thanks. It was great. I had a lot of fun. It was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.